competition's only going to get more fierce in the future. Yeah. And if you're running a business or you have a product or a service that you're trying to get through to people, you do need to get someone to love it. Otherwise, they're going to love your competition and you'll be the ones that they'll just scroll past on social media. Over the last few years, I've sensed that the world of work might be shifting. Instead of doing business just to make money, there's been a recognition that having a profit and a purpose mindset could create a very different world for us all. Companies have recognised that when they set out to look after the environment, their employees and their suppliers and customers, they form a very different relationship altogether. And so, in this podcast series, I set out to show how this new way of doing business can work and why this reboot has come at exactly the right time. In each episode, I'll talk with someone who's playing a huge part in shaping our new working world, a world in which profit and purpose can thrive together. In this first episode, you're going to hear an extended interview with Tim Duggan, the co-founder of Junkie Media and author of a brand new book, Cult Status, How to Build a Business People Adore. In our chat together, he shares stories of business founders that simply knew there was a better vision to follow. It's a great listen, and I hope it inspires many of you to think differently about how, with purpose and vision, we can shape a better working world for us all. You're listening to Purpose and Vision, the podcast that digs deep into why and how companies are making a greater impact in our world by focusing on profit and purpose. This is the podcast that tells the stories and inspires us all to think differently about business today. I started a, a digital media company called Junkie Media um, 10 plus years ago. And I had just been feeling like the way that we do business and the sort of companies that were coming through and the people who were starting these companies and the consumers who were buying from these companies was really different. So I could sense that there was something going on. And it originally started as a bit of a hunch. And so we commissioned a lot of research into the audience because I, 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 could, I could feel that something was changing about how they wanted to spend with their wallets. And we worked with the independent research company called Pollinate Research. And one of the, we'd kind of tracked um, where people were saying, well, no, we actually want businesses to give a shit. Mm. And then what happened was the businesses started to respond to that. The ones that became successful are the ones that really showed that they actually cared, not just put in their, put in their marketing. And it's interesting because the reason I wanted to start this podcast was to A, bring people's attention to the fact that it's going on and it's going on quite rapidly, but also to to start to change the way that people think about doing business. And it was interesting you said there, you know, sort of the 2013, 2014, something must have shifted, almost like, you know, the plates shifted and the public started becoming a little bit more expectant of companies doing the right thing. And up until that point, companies weren't even seeing that as an issue. And then the plates did shift. And as you say, companies started to respond. And I suppose the last five or six years, I'm interested in your take on this, they've really started to build on this. And those that have seized this have become hugely successful very rapidly. Yeah, I, I actually have been really intrigued as to what changed in, in that period, kind of 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, to me, it feels like the biggest issue was the climate crisis or climate emergency kind of became so pressing and so important as the number one issue. Um, and I felt like that was, you know, up until then, you know, the scientists when they talked about um, global warming and increasing by two degrees, it felt like it was far in the future. It mm -hmm. was oh, something bad might happen in 2030, something bad might happen in 2040. And I think when we started getting into those um, into those years, which was you know six seven years ago, people realised that that was within their lifetime, mm. and that was kind of on the horizon. And that that became almost like the main issue that drove a lot of people to have this awareness. And then once their eyes were open up to climate and environmental and sustainability, they then looked around at other social issues that also needed um, needed to be just as important. Um, and I think the other key thing that's happened over the past five to seven years is that 
a lot of the people who think this way are moving into those positions of power, giving them the levers to be able to actually act upon it. So even looking across the pond into New Zealand and looking at a world they'd like to see the idea. You know, she is, um, um, she's a millennial, she's 39, um, very, like one of the oldest millennials. And she has kind of been brought up in, in this world and with, with this, um, this kind of belief system. And all of a sudden, she's now there on the world stage with the ability to be able to do something and to be able to pressure other countries. Mm. And we're seeing that across the board from politics through to CEOs through to even people just working in businesses. I want to ask your opinion on whether you, you think this move, this shift is happening because in many ways politics is failing us. So it's easier for us to potentially get uh, um, uh, you know, a change of direction through the companies we buy from because we have a commercial power that we can exert. I think it definitely is. I think, I think government and politics has failed us. Um, I look at some of the kind of the pressing issues about pressing issues of our time, you know, around the environment. I look at um, things like same-sex marriage, where our Australian government kind of really dragged the, the dragged the chain, dragged the ball, which, whichever is the um, the same, dragged the um, their leadership on that, um, and didn't do anything. And instead, it was companies like Qantas, the airline, and Alan Joseph, the CEO of Qantas that were the ones saying, well, where are we going to stand up? And then every other company in the world kind of in Australia got behind it and really led the way before the government ever did. Um, and I think the same thing's happening in terms of the environment and the climate. I don't think our climate problems are going to be solved by government. I think they're going to be solved by businesses. Mm. I agree with you. And I think this is where I have a little hope, um, a bit of optimism, because I think that business can also possibly react quite quickly but it's the momentum that business and businesses can then build that means this could happen far quicker than perhaps if government did this on its own i i totally agree i I, i'm i'm really optimistic on this um i believe we're entering this fascinating period right now where finally what the consumers want is loud enough for the businesses to be able to act on that and then finally, there's enough businesses to be able to have momentum mm. to do it all at the same time. Yeah. And if you're a business that's, that's launched in 2021 and you don't have, you haven't thought about how your business affects the environment and how your business affects your suppliers and how your employees are treated, you're not going to survive it. To the, you're not mm. going to make it to the end of 2021. Let's delve into the the book, and and in particular, I'm interested in the stories that that, that you um, researched, that the people you spoke to, the companies all around the world that I would call are very much leaders in this new space, and they're the ones who had the courage and the conviction to follow their hearts and to do something that they fully believe in. T- tell me what you, if you, if you were to summarize and say what what they all had in common from those conversations that you had, what was it that they all really sort of had as their beating heart? One of the most fascinating parts of writing Cult Status was looking out at all of these different companies and the the leaders who were starting to create them and having amazing success and spending time with them. And this was was a moment pre-COVID when I was able to fly around the world and went over to Silicon Valley and spent time with people over there and went to London and uh, to Melbourne and all around the country. And the most fascinating thing that I saw that they all had in common, I spoke to about 50 different people and people ranging from Blake Mycosti, who started Tom's, the footwear brand that kind of pioneered the one-for-one movement, through to Zoe Foster Blake, who started a skincare range called GoTo, through to Tim Brown, a former vice-captain of the New Zealand soccer team who started a company called All Birds, through to Daniel Flynn, who started Thank You um, Thank You Group, but um, have all of the um, uh, hand soap and shower um, care stuff yeah. all, all around um, the country. Um, speaking to all of them, they all had, they all knew why they were doing what they were doing. They didn't accidentally stumble into it. They all had thought consciously 
I want to use business as a force for good. So it wasn't something that kind of accidentally happened that they, you know, Daniel Flynn started making hand wash and then decided, oh, wouldn't it be nice if this hand wash supported, um, you know, projects in developing countries? Um, Zoe Foster Blake, who started GoTo, she didn't start a skincare range and be, and then realised that she wanted to use it to be purely simple ingredients and really uncomplicated marketing. Yeah, they all started with that intent at the very beginning. Yeah, and I think that's what set them apart is that they kind of, they knew their why and they knew their purpose before they started. Okay, so they start with clarity and the normal premise that hopefully the money will follow. Are these people who are just well-intentioned or do you think they have that commercial nous as well? You've got to have the commercial nous. And I think that's what made, that's what set these people that I spoke to who all, you know, were leading multi-million dollar businesses. Some of them hundreds of millions. In fact, some of them billion dollar businesses in the case of um, Allbirds, which is valued at 1.2 billion US dollars. Mm. Um, they They were able to marry the really succinct clarity of why they were doing what they're doing with the business nous that enabled that enabled them to execute that and that marriage of having those two skills is really what set them apart yeah and it's interesting because the the whole what we're talking about here is that combination of purpose and profit not necessarily one or the other which is a narrative that has been pushed for, you know for, for donkey's years it's you, you can either do one or the other you can't do both these individuals and these companies that you're talking about very much have embraced the, no, we can do both. We will do both and it will be hugely successful. Yeah. And I, and I set out to question that concept. So is profit and purpose just a marketing wake word? Mm -hmm. Is it something that the big brands say, yeah, of course we've got, we've got profits, but we're also got purpose and let's put those two things together. Is it just marketing bullshit? Um, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that it wasn't. And there was, I, I documented 50 companies in this book. And since then, I've now been met and introduced to about another hundred of them who really are combining the two things together. Yeah. And in fact, I think almost the only way of having sustainable profit in the future over the next 10 years yeah. will be by having a really clear purpose. I, I totally agree with you. I, I want to just question you on this idea of fake and authentic because, again, the public aren't stupid. And there are a lot of companies who go, well, we could sort of make a claim that we're going to do this and that can hopefully wash with the public and they'll love us. I sense that those people that you talked to were not like that. They were very authentic, knowing that it had to be everything from top to bottom that was thought through. Your consumers are, are getting smart and they are using social media to question inauthenticity when they see it. Um, they're using social media to find other people who are also calling out brands I think are being inauthentic. And consumers are really aware these days if someone is talking bullshit or not. And it's easy to say, yes, we're sustainable and yes, we use recycled material. But consumers are now going past that. Hmm. So they, they're asking, what do you mean you're sustainable? Where is that from? Show me the factory it's made. Um, show me the certification that you have. Show me the independent third party who is verifying that what you're doing is, um, is actually sustainable. So I feel like people are pretty wise now to hmm. the marketing side of goodness and they're actually asking them, searching for proof do you think it's because we have the the platforms now the social media platforms where in the past companies could get away with it but now they can be called out very rapidly very much so yeah any anyone who is inauthentic in, in what they do is immediately called out mm. um a really live example of that that wasn't in the book because it only happened recently is oscar wiley an australian brand that produces um glasses and uh, says on their website and part of their um, their ethos is that for every pair sold, they'll donate um, another pair or equivalent to developing countries. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a model that's kind of been pretty much pretty well established over the years. It's sometimes a problematic model. Um, and recently they were accused of and found out um, in a legal case of actually not donating 
um, any money or donating a very minuscule amount of money compared to what they said mm-hmm. um, based on the number of glasses they'd sold. And to me, that is a death knell for a business. Yep. Very hard for a business to, to authentically stand there and mm-hmm. say, this is what we do when they don't actually do it. Well, they've broken trust. They have. Yes. You, that, that's exa- exactly it. You have you have one chance to um, create trust with your consumers. Yeah. And as soon as you break that, it's going to be very hard for them, I think, to um, live up to the, what they want to do in the future. How would you advise, and I'm fascinated by this because I'm working with a lot of organisations that are, are recognising the need to do something. How would you advise, let's given the fact that here we are in Western Australia, which is, you know, very resource, you know, lead, um, gas, oil, all the sort of the dirty kind of polluting organisations you can imagine. How would you advise an organisation that hasn't really dipped its toe in properly? They might have made gestures or made sounds that sound like they're interested. How would you advise them to embrace this new opportunity? It's a great question. And it's one that I am asked often because the, the premise is it's a lot easier to build this into something from the start. So if you're launching something tomorrow, it's a lot easier to go out and find a sustainable provider and then launch your product off the back of that sustainable provider than it is to shift your supply chains or something you've been doing for 20 or 30 years. Yep. Um, however, it can be done. It really can be done, but it needs to be done in a proper way with buying from the top all the way down to the bottom can't be done in a half-assed way um, and I'll give you an example it's actually a company that I've, I'm in Melbourne at the moment um, doing a bunch of video interviews for a video series where I'm um, bringing to life some of the ideas inside cult status and one of the companies that I spent time with this week is called Apparel and they are a I'll tell you what they are now and then I'll tell you what they were and how they evolved they are a sustainable sock and underwear subscription business. So their philosophy is um, rather than create excess production waste um, in producing garments like socks and undies and then having to try and sell them, they go out there and I think they've got, let's say, 10,000 customers who every month receive a new pair of socks or a new pair of undies and they know exactly how many to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, they started out a few years ago, about five years ago, as a company called Man Rags. And they were a sock and underwear company and they kind of produced their socks and underwears. And then a few years into it, the founder, uh, one of the co-founders, a guy called Michael, he went to replace all of his socks and undies and tried to figure out, okay, what do I do with them? How can I sustainably get rid of these? They're old socks and undies. You can't really give them to a charity. To a charity. Um, how can you actually recycle textiles? And he realized that there wasn't a really easily accessible way of doing that. Mm-hmm. So then he kind of pivoted the company towards um, customers can now put together a box of their old textiles. So not necessarily, not old undies. They, um, they're still working on a way to recycle those. Yeah. But old socks um, and T-shirts and pants, and they get picked up from the front of your doorstep taken to their warehouse and you then get a credit to spend on new socks and undies in their their store. Mm -hmm. So their company has evolved from essentially being one that kind of didn't really think around about what happens at the end stage to being this complete circular economy now um, over the past five years. And and their business today is not what it looked like five years ago, but they were really tuned to seeing what the problem was and then acting on it and changing their company with it. I love that. And so maybe there's a message in, in this for established companies. What what it takes is for the leadership in particular, I suppose, who can steer the ship to step back or step out or, you know, look above and go, how do we redesign what we've been doing so that it does tick all those boxes? Because it it does take a, a an overhaul, doesn't it? And and generally speaking, as human beings, we like to do what we've always done because that groove has been made and it's a lot easier. Mm. It, it means these companies yeah. have to almost get into new grooves, yeah. new mindsets. It does, and, and it means being open to potentially throwing out yes. every everything you've done in the past. What served them well um, as and, well. 
Yeah, and that's bloody scary for mm, most people. Mm. But the reason why we do what we've always done is for comfort. It's for ease. It's for cost saving. And as soon as you realize that all those things, you know, you, you're going to re- reconsider all of them, that's really freaking scary for people. Yeah. But if you don't think about that, someone else, your competitor is going to come along and think about it and you'll be the one left, you know, trying to scramble to catch up and maybe trying to do it inauthentically because you hadn't thought of it in the first place. And the advice I always give to companies is that even if you're not thinking about it, your audience or your customers are thinking about it. So you're going to have to think about it. You can't just ignore it and put your head in the sand. Uh, Completely. And so coming back to this um, company, Apparel, Michael from Apparel was saying that the way that his audience and community that he's built around the product engages with their product now versus what they did five years ago when they were just a stock and underwear company and now they're this complete circular fashion sustainable company, the loyalty and the community that he's building around that is so strong because they identify with what the purpose yeah. is. Yeah. And, and they didn't identify with what the purpose was five years ago. Yeah. But if he, as a leader, wasn't attuned to that and wasn't willing to throw it all out and start basically from scratch, then the business wouldn't exist today. How interesting. And you're effectively saying he has a company that people, you know, has a business that people adore. Um, mm. And you can't say that about a lot of companies. Let's face it, you've you've brought out the stories of, you know, 50 plus companies that are doing this. Why do you think that this is going to be the next big thing? And and also on that, for companies that haven't got to a door status yet, they'll read about these companies that are mentioned in the book and go, wow, that's, that's something spectacular. I don't think people adore us. So how would we set out to change? Is it bit by bit or do we go hard from the beginning? There is so much noise at the moment. If you're a consumer... You have, you turn on the TV, you walk outside your house, you uh, look on Facebook. You have so much information coming at you. Noise, ads, content, people trying to sell you things, people trying to tell you things. And when you're a business or brand and you're trying to sell to someone, you're just another part of that noise. So the only way, and that noise is increasing, So there's more brands coming in, there's more media coming in, there's more um, information coming in to to everyone every single day. So the only way if you're a brand that you're going to succeed in the future is if you are welcomed into somebody's inbox or if you put a smile on someone's face when they see an ad when you Mm -hmm. walk past Mm -hmm. or if they're scrolling through their Facebook and they see something that you, a video that you posted and they stop and actually look at it. That's the only way that you're going to get people's attention in the future. And the only way of actually maintaining that relationship with the consumer is if they want you in their life and they've therefore got to love you. Um, And it's a, you know, it's a controversial topic to say, do people love brands? But I think that they do. They, they love what brands stand for. Mm -hmm. They love what, how a brand makes them feel or what that brand puts out into the world. So yeah, I think, I think, I think it's only going to get the competition's only going to get more fierce in the future. Yeah. And if you're running a business or you have a product or a service that you're trying to get through to people, you do need to get someone to love it. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, they're going to love your competition, and you'll be the ones that they'll just scroll past on on social media. Exactly. And the incumbents aren't the quickest movers. It's the people who aren't even in the market that are going to be the biggest threat, I would imagine. And Completely. It was interesting. It was at a party the other other day, and um, there I was wearing my, you mentioned the Allbirds, and I was wearing my Allbirds shoes. And there was another chap there who had the Allbirds on. It's funny, you both spot each other in We suddenly went to, you know, storytelling about the the company and why it does what it does and how important that is. And I think that's that kind of tribe element that that comes from people getting behind companies that are doing the right thing because you buy into the whole the whole essence of it, don't you? What a what a great example! Um, And that is a brand that you can love. So Allbirds is a shoe company that. You wear them and you see someone else wearing them and then you realize, okay, that person is aligned with my values. They care about where their money goes. 
um, and you're part of a community of mm. people who all think in that same way. Um, and I think Allbirds is a brilliant example of a shoe company that has built a really strong community around it with great products. They are some of the most comfortable shoes out there mm. that make you feel good about them when you wear it because of how they are made and the, the thought that goes into their entire supply chain. Um, and then the fact that you saw someone else there and kind of all of a sudden had an ice-breaking element yeah. because you're both wearing the same shoes, yeah. that doesn't happen when you're wearing Nikes. Not so much, you're right. Um, just on that, in your book you talk about the, the rapid growth because I, I, there'll be people listening to this who might be more interested in the commercial aspect rather than the other aspect, you know, the, the profit and the purpose. But the profit side, when this was a product people loved and their growth was enormous, wasn't it? Very rapid. Huge. Look, Allbirds sold more shoes in their first few years than Nike did when they were um, in their first few years. I mean, they, they sold a million pairs of shoes in 12 months mm. or something crazy like that. And that was back when they basically had one style. Yeah. They, they launched with, you know, one style of a shoe and they just sold so many of them. Um, and their last valuation was $1.2 billion US dollars. Yeah. Um, and I spent some time with Tim Brown over in um, the co-founder of that over in San Francisco, and they can't keep up with their growth. This was pre-COVID, I'm just going to say. So, so this was, um, you know, when growth was kind of hyper-growth. Yeah. But they just were were expanding into offices and the offices next door and the offices next door to that in San Francisco um, because they kept on running out of space because they were selling so many shoes and opening up so many stores. Um, so it's you can have a really clear purpose and make shit tons of money. Yep, those two things are not mutually exclusive. What would happen if a, an Allbirds was approached by a Nike? It's a it's a really good question, um, and there's some history with this um, of really purposeful companies being approached and being taken over by bigger hulking companies. Um, famous examples of this are Ben and Jerry's, who were bought out by Unilever, mm. um, and The Body Shop, which was bought mm. out by L'Oreal. Um, and both of those brands, both Body Shop and Ben and Jerry's, they were bought out many years ago. Both of them have thrived in their environment. And I remember Anita Roddick, who was the founder of The Body Shop, one of the things that she said, because she got a lot of criticism, because The Body Shop was probably one of the first mainstream retail stores to really give a shit about things outside of just the bottom line. Um, they were seen almost as extreme at the time. They were the, you know, where the greenies would go and shop. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of people gave an erotic um, shit when she sold out to yeah. L'Oreal. Um, and she said that she would rather be like a Trojan horse on the inside, helping a bigger company figure out how to do it. And she can have just as much impact on the inside of a bigger company as she can on the small company. Yeah. So I feel that if an Allbirds was approached by Nike and they were able to, you know, they, they did a deal, their ethos, because the people who run it are not um, insincere, they're really authentic with how they do it, if they could, if they firmly and genuinely believe there was an opportunity to be able to, you know, the, the tail wag the dog and get a bigger company to to move into a more sustainable way you've got to kind of you've got to have faith that they might be able to do that yeah um yeah. and the ben and jerry's and unilever example is a great one where unilever has said all the right things recently they have said that you know if any of their brands any of the brands that don't have a purpose over the next few years won't exist i know so um yeah. the proof is still yet to be in the pudding for that yeah um there is there's examples of of smaller really ethical companies um mm. making bigger companies better i want your take on it, people listening to this who might be part of an organization so in other words they're not leading it and they may say this sounds great i wish my company did this but they're not doing it and they don't see if you like the elephant that we can perhaps see how how would you advise someone who was within who not necessarily was leading to, to try and exert an influence that might shift that company? I asked Blake Mykoski this exact question. Um, so Blake started Tom's, the um, shoe brand that gives one to develop a country when they um, purchase 
um, one of their shoes, and I asked him the exact same question. I was like, "How can how can anyone, an employee, actually make a difference here when they might not be at that senior managerial level?" Um, and his response, and I agree with it, was, "Everyone has the ability to affect their little space that they're in, and if you do want to have change within your company, it's your responsibility to speak up and to." make a change in your space that you can affect mm-hmm. aware that if someone is a middle management or if they're even if they're entry level there's obviously less power than they have but they've still got a really important place within the company and that might be to gather up other people around you who also feel the same way so you amplifying your your impact um or it could be just starting something small within your floor or within your cubicle that other people can see and can hopefully grow from there um, I'd like to think also that the people who work inside companies, generally people are drawn into companies because you share similar values. Yep. Um, so I think that there's there's the ability for anyone in a company to be able to, to impart those values mm. onto people above them um, because hopefully you should think in a similar way. And let's just drop down a level to consumer level um, or maybe even investor level. So in other words, you have a relationship with an organization, they're not necessarily doing what you think they should be doing. They're not paying attention to the to, to, to the elements that you consider to be very important. How do you think you can most have an influence on that organization in that way? I think as a consumer, there's almost a disproportionate effect that you can have. Um, you can vote with your wallet. Um, you can call people out on social media if you think that they're not um, living up to the ideals that they say they are. You can gather together other people by finding people in Facebook groups and Twitter groups and that's on Twitter and um, find other people who feel the same way and approach companies together. Um, there is it, companies really look at what their customers and what their investors think, probably hmm. more so than anyone else. Um, I'll give you a, a great example of that is one of the companies I profile in the book is called Future Super and yeah. it started by a guy called Simon Sheik who yeah. used to be the executive director of GetUp which was an activist organization and he started a super company, co-founder super company that invests all of their money, um, all of their um, you know, the people who give their super to them into um non-climate, uh, so, you know, climate-positive um, initiatives and renewables and all of the good stuff. Um, and he was saying, so when they launched, they were the first proper green super fund. Um, it's now an area that's kind of really exploded in a yep. really wonderful way. Yep. And he was saying that it really surprised him how quickly the bigger super funds took notice of them launching the market. Yeah. So it literally, I think, took them you know, 1,000, 2,000 people went over to them from the big super companies and all of a sudden the big super companies stood up and went, what is going on here? There's a trend that we're just at the beginning of. And that was because 1,000 people decided to take their money out of one super fund to put it into somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So that's a really clear example of it doesn't take that many people in order for these big behemoths to realise that there's a trend here that they need to get on top of. And, and Simon even said that, kind of half jokingly, but um, um, half jokingly, that his idea of success is almost when he, his company is no longer differentiated because everyone is offering a green solution. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's almost like he's kind of yeah. working himself out of a job. Yeah. Um, but it's because he puts the planet above profit. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, you and I are both involved in the world of journalism and, and, and broadcasting and writing. What, what about mainstream media's take on um, this profit and purpose that, you know, for the last goodness knows how many years, capitalism has been very much dominated by return to shareholders and, and making big profits and growth and GDP growth and you name it, all those sort of words that we hear over and over again. How do you think mainstream media is is going to potentially next year raise the bar in this space? I think journalists and the media are inherently cynical. <laughs> um, this comes from the journalism industry myself, where you're taught as a, as a journalist and as a reporter, your job is to ask questions. 
and to poke holes and to find the story behind things. And I think when this rise of this conscious consumerism has kind of appeared over the last few years, that a lot of journalists have kind of treated it a little bit suspiciously, um, a little bit as marketing buzzwords. Yep. Um, and what I think is changing is the stories of successes coming up now are the companies that are um, the companies that are having success are having major success. So, you know, like Zoe Foster Blake, who um, is uh, was a beauty director at, at um, for magazines and then started Go To Skincare. She just debuted this year on the on the AFR Young Rich list um, with Go To valued at forty something million dollars, um, and she all of a sudden now not just because of the financial success, but because of her influential success, kind of can't be ignored anymore. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of like growing um, influence that a lot of these companies are having. Um, so I feel that I feel that the stories of these entrepreneurs who are balancing profit and purpose together are becoming so successful and are becoming so important that the media kind of has no choice but to cover them over mm. the next year or two. And, and what about the issue of listing you know public listing where your uh, number one priority as it stands today is is for the shareholder most of the companies that you talk to in this book are all private yeah it's a that's a, that's a really interesting one um and the corporations act essentially dictates that shareholders are the most important in in the the scheme of things for public listing companies so there weren't many public listed companies that we could speak to yep. um, because for them, that is that is a model that is, I think, rooted a bit in the past. Um, and I feel like that will have to change over time because there's this kind of dichotomy going on where yeah. you've kind of got yeah. your ASX listed companies who are just, not they're just out to make money, but they're, you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make money. And then you've got almost this alternative group coming through who have said, yes, we want to make money, but we also want to look after the planet and look after our employees and look after our suppliers. And there's this this dichotomy between the two of them. It's going to be a really fascinating thing to watch over the next 10 years. Isn't it just? But, but the act almost needs to change because... At the moment, as it stands, you know the 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 board can hear all the commentary going on from the public saying that they should do X, Y, and Z. But if that is going to have an impact potentially on profits, then they can't do what they feel that they should do. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's signs, particularly out of out of the US, that that's changing. Um, an example is is BlackRock, which is the largest yes, yes, yes. investor in the world. Um, and their CEO has come out the last few years with his annual letter talking about the importance of purpose and the importance of planet and the importance of climate. Um, and that, to me, feels a bit like a canary in the coal mine. Yep. When you have the largest investor in the world talking about how important that is, that might take a few years to trickle down, but that is the, the direction where we're heading. Just before we finish, because we we could talk for hours, because it's such a fascinating topic, and because you've spoken to so many companies all featured in this book, you've got this lovely grand take on things. I just wanted to bring uh, the listeners' attention to the steps that are, that you feel are uh, essential to, to moving towards this cult status where people can actually say, wow, what a great company. I actually adore that company. Um, just run us, rather than go through all of them in detail, there are seven steps that you feature in the book. And it would be remiss of me not to talk about those steps because to me, it's a beautiful way of A, bringing people in on the topic, but then guiding mm-hmm. them through the process so that they can do something practical. Yeah, it took, it took a while to get to those steps. Um, the book writing process was a lot of absorbing information, a lot of digesting it, and then really trying to make it as easy as possible for someone to understand in a practical way. Great, Tim, you've got all this theory. You've inspired me with these companies here. How the fuck can I actually do it myself? <laughs> so the seven steps to building a business with cult status, I'll, I'll run through them very yeah, quickly. Yeah, please do. Um, the first one is think impact first. 
which is before you do anything else, quantify on paper the effect that you want to have. So don't think about um, how much money you want to make or don't think about what your thing's going to be called or don't think about who your audience is. Think first around what do you actually want it to do. So thinking back first. The second one is question all the small things, which is essentially can be overwhelming sometimes thinking about all these big things that need to change and you might look at some of these businesses that we've spoken about and think yeah but they're you know that it's too hard to think about that whereas question all the small things really refers to try to prioritize what are those small changes you can make that are going to have an important um, difference in how you do things and if you can start making some of those small changes first the bigger ones won't seem as daunting mm-hmm. The third step is to refine your superpower, which is thinking both personally and professionally, what is it that you can do slightly better than anyone else that you have a superpower in? So for me personally, I'm really great and I love building communities Mm -hmm. and I love then fueling them with stories of content and I've done that for my entire career. So if you can think personally about what your superpower is that you can do better than other people um, and, and or your business can do, that's a really important thing. The fourth step is define your altar, which is if you want to build a business that has cult status, you really need to direct and center all of the love or the potential love that people might have for your business into one central place mm-hmm. and then bring together other people who also feel that same way. Um, in the past, that had to be a physical space, like a conference or an event or a, um, an awards night, yep. whereas now that can be a digital space, a digital altar for people to come together. The fifth one is drop the bullshit, which we've spoken about <laughs> um, at length today, which is you have to be authentic and you have to be honest and you have to cut through all that noise. And the only way of doing that is by being really just treating your audience as though they're a friend and not bullshitting them. The sixth one is called lead from the middle. The concept behind this is that leadership and the best way of running a business now is making sure everyone, so from your customers to your staff, really understands where you are going and the purpose of what you're trying to do and then sitting back a bit as a leader and letting them find their way there with a bit of support from you. So lead from the middle is almost the idea of you're walking with someone to get to a goal as opposed to just telling them um, how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then the final one is strap yourself in, um, which is I couldn't write a book about running a business at people adore and pretend that it was all going to be roses and amazing and it's an easy thing because it's really fucking difficult to, to run a business that balances profit and purpose and mainly for that reason that it is a balance. So you're going to be constantly shifting between pulling one way and then between profit and pull the other way towards purpose. And that is quite a battle that you need to, to kind of walk every single day. So strap yourself in means that the, the journey is going to be hard and it's going to be long, but it's also going to be so rewarding um, if you can kind of get it right. I really hope that in the conversation we've had, which is to me have been a, a perfect introduction to you know why this is important and and the and the possibilities that emerge as a result of venturing down this path i i hope that the whole idea with this podcast was to inspire others to say you know this is doable in fact it's not only doable but we need to do it because if we don't do it we could become irrelevant and i wonder whether in your conversations with some of these businesses, you got that feeling with those businesses that they were just onto something before they recognised that the huge crowd started to do the same. Yeah, I think they all started from a really authentic place. They started from, I want to help in this area. Or I've got a problem that I want to solve. Yeah, And I, almost none of them started thinking, I want to build this huge business that has 100 staff. Yeah, They started from, I've got this little problem to solve that is important to me. And they solved it, and then they realized that other people also had the same problem. I, I noticed as well, you're not a big fan of the word entrepreneur, are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I'm not. And I, I have this love-hate relationship with it because it is an easy shortcut sometimes. But, God, I feel like it's kind of been hijacked <laughs> by tech bros in Silicon Valley. 
Um, and a lot of the people I spoke to, um, particularly people who were outside of white straight men, um, kind of battled with the with the title, and they didn't really love it. So yeah, I came up with a term in the book called entrepreneur, which is kind of an entrepreneur who's kind of like undoing the old ways of thinking about business. Um, and it was my way of protesting against the word entrepreneur. Thank you for doing it. I much prefer your <laughs> version. I really do. <laughs> Tim, it's been wonderful to talk to you. As I say, I could talk for a long, long time on this topic. And, and I'm so glad that this book is doing so well for you because it's written beautifully. It's really understandable. It's really easy to digest and then to action. Um, in closing, and this is something as I've got as an idea for the podcast, I'm really interested in, if you like, that direct connection with the next person that we talk to on this podcast. And I thought, what a great way of starting, given the fact that you've spoken to so many people. Who should I speak to next on this podcast? Someone that you have an affinity with, you know, hopefully the listeners will connect with as well. So I leave it in your hands as to who you think should be the next person that we feature on this podcast. Oh, so much power. Yes, I can, I can. I can send you down a rabbit hole. You could, here. you could send me down a booby trap. Yes, you could. Yes, um, but I won't. I will send you down a really fascinating path, and that is that in a lot of the media interviews I've been doing since the book came out, um, me have been asking me, "What do I think is the best example of a company in Australia that is actually balancing profit and purpose together?" Mm -hmm. Um, because there's, it is, as I said, it's something that we talk about as this kind of holy grail to get to. And for me, the company that is best balancing profit and purpose together is Who Gives a Crap? The toilet paper company that started 10 years ago by a guy called Simon Griffiths mm -hmm. um, and some of his co-founders that took on a industry that was no one had thought of. All of us use toilet paper every single day and no one had thought to disrupt it, to make it out of recyclable materials, make it fun, make it interesting, make it into a subscription business. Um, and Simon toiled away at this business. And I remember, I've known him for years, and I remember in the early days thinking, oh, that's kind of like a fun little business, how kind of like fun, but quite unglamorous. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he was a perfect example of questioning all the small things. So he questioned why can't it be fun? Why can't we have fun wrapping paper on there? Why can't the boxes have jokes on there? Why can't it be a subscription business? Because we know that essentially how often someone goes to the toilet and how much you need to replace your toilet paper. Um, so he questioned all of these things and then built up this business that was a good business and then the pandemic hit this year and all of a sudden the 10 years of hard work he'd done in building this business just skyrocketed it through to the point where they had 600,000 people on their waiting list for their products and were selling something like 30 rolls a second. Wow. Um, so much so. And the other part of, of Who Gives a Crap and the reason why it actually is a physical embodiment of profit and purpose is they donate 50% of their profits to building sanitation in developing countries. Yeah. And this year, this financial year, they made $12 million in profit. So they donated $6 million and Simon and the other co-founders kept $6 million. Mm. So it's literally the best example of an Australian company that is balancing profit, $12 million, serious amount of profit, with purpose, building um, sustainable sanitation in developing countries. So my suggestion in this long-winded explanation would be to chat with Simon Griffiths, the co-founder of He Gives a Crap. That I shall do. I shall take that recommendation, and and I will say it's it's a it's a perfect story. It really is. It 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 just demonstrates how you can balance it, do well get a huge following, and hopefully build for long-term success. Um, how can people find you uh, if they want to get in touch with you, Tim? Um, obviously, the book is out, Cult Status. It is out, um, and it's in probably most bookshops. I think um, it would be great when people go to the airports again. They'll probably find it there as well. But um, yeah. what on social media, where do you normally play? Yeah, so the easiest way 
um, if anyone if this has piqued anyone's interest in cult status, is to go to cultstatus.com. Um, and there you will find how to buy the book. Um, you can get it from Audible or from Amazon or from Booktopia or anywhere, any independent bookstore. Um, and all of my social channels and everything are links straight there. So just head to cultstatus.com. Brilliant. What a pleasure. What a great start as well. And thank you for, for giving out, as I thought, you'd give a great overview of the whole space uh, and how you cheers. felt it was going to you know, adapt. Just a final word, and let's just say we were talking 12 months from now. What, what change do you think we might have seen uh, at a local level and an international level with regards to the influence of, of business in this space and uh, some new businesses coming through embracing this space? I think in 12 months from now, we would hopefully be coming out of COVID. And what COVID has done has been to accelerate business trends that were kind of bubbling away under the surface and accelerate them by 10 years. So things like online shopping and telehealth have all kind of been catapulted to where they were going to be in 10 years' time. So I feel like a lot of these concepts around these businesses that are doing well, that are doing good and supported by consumers, my hope is that in 12 months' time, they will also be catapulted 10 years into the future. And that if you are a business that doesn't have a really clear purpose, if you don't know what your purpose is, and if you are not in some way, even if it's small, giving back to the community that you exist in, then you're probably not going to survive over the next 10 years. And I feel like that's going to be really common and understood. Um, and the proliferation of businesses in a year's time should really excite me. Um, and I'm genuinely pumped to see where it's going to go from here. Me too. Tim, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and um, good luck with book number two, which I know you're working on now and we'll hopefully chat on that one when that one comes out as well. Awesome. Thanks, James. We enjoyed the chat. You've been listening to Purpose and Vision. For more details about this podcast, go to the website purposeandvisionpodcast.com. Or find us on Facebook at Purpose and Vision, on Instagram, Purpose.Vision, and on Twitter at PurposeVision1. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, and perhaps you'd be kind enough to rate the show. This will help others find it. Just go to where you download your podcast and enter a review. Thank you so much.